My name is Tim, and I love Christmas carols. Honestly, I love all things Christmas. I've also been a church musician and worship leader for over 20 years. On this podcast, we're going to explore some of the most popular and beloved Christmas carols of all time. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Nope, not that. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Definitely not that. I mean, the carols many of us grew up singing in church or hearing on TV specials and movies. If you take some time and slow down and really dig into those carols, you'll find profound hope and peace. And in small pockets of quiet this holiday season, you can find comfort and joy. This is Comfort and Joy. Guys, today we have a great guest, and the conversation was really profound, in my opinion. Uh, it took a turn at one point that impacted me on a personal level. It really spoke to the need to slow down and the desire to have margin in our lives, um, which is always a struggle at this time of year. So we're going to get into talking about this Christmas Carol today, and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Sandra Glan is a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. She is the author or co-author of more than 25 books. She's also the wife of one husband, mother of one daughter, and the reluctant convert to cat ownership. Plus, she loves dark chocolate. You guys welcome with me, Dr. Sandra Glan. Uh, Sandy or Dr. Glan, as as I know that I, it's weird because I've known you for a long time, but I'm I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Uh, I really am excited to talk about a carol that's really lesser known. I'm going to play just a bit of it from a very famous voice that you'll recognize, and then we'll jump into it. So here's our Christmas carol for the day. The Holly and the Ivy. The Holly and the Ivy by good old Bing Crosby. So I, I found that verse and thought it'd be a great lead in. But so we want to talk about the Holly and the Ivy. And like I've done with most of my guests, I've said, please tell me what song you'd love to talk about. What would get you excited to talk about? And you picked the Holly and the Ivy. And, and so I really would just love to hand it over to you. And why don't you talk about kind of the, the history of it, the when, where, and what about this carol? Sure. I'd love to. Well, first of all, we're not exactly sure of its, of its, roots, but we know that it's coming out of the middle of England and probably early 18th century. And it has a little tradition around the lyrics before it has the music, you know, as is so typical of, of many songs. So the lyrics are are coming at a time when they're probably passed down only orally. We're not going to see it written down till the 1800s, but it's probably maybe a century earlier than that, maybe even early 1700s. And it's at a time where um, you know, picture Hannah Moore, the early abolitionist, is going into very poor areas, rural areas, or super poor parts of London. There's no such thing as public school. And nobody's educated. Nobody knows how to read unless they're upper classes. So you have all these mnemonic devices. Uh, I think of uh, the 12 Days of Christmas is another w example of that, where you have all this symbolism that's packed into ordinary things because they're memory devices for people who can't read. 
Hmm. And so the holly and the ivy represent Jesus and his mother and, and each thing. And what we'll talk, you know, we'll, we'll walk through the lyrics later, but, but that's the design of it is taking the gospel to the masses, taking the truth to the masses, catechizing the masses so that they are learning just basic facts about, in this case, about the passion of Christ. And even though Mary appears in every verse with Jesus, it's still always pointing back to Jesus. Right. Like, because she bore the Savior, because she bore the one who, you know, and that, but it's still a, a truth about Christ. So then we get this melody that, that was the first re- uh, recorded person writing down when they heard it was a woman singing it in Chipping Camden in the Cotswolds. And my husband and I love the Cotswolds because we stumbled upon them in, in London on this trip we had taken years ago. And picture this sort of little town that was medieval roots and you, you've got snow and candles burning, you know, winter comes early in the day. And the other thing I love about England is it's so it's so Anglican and the Anglicans are serious about the I mean the hardcore Anglicans are serious about not singing Christmas carols until Christmas Eve but they start singing them on Christmas Eve but then they sing them all the 12 days of Christmas till the 12th night right and and so they don't really hardcore decorate their churches until then. So if you go and visit after your Christmas festivities are over, you're just hitting these cathedrals that are full of candlelight and they smell like, uh, you know, fur and there's mold wine or mold cider and sticky toffee pudding. I mean, your senses are just going crazy and Christmas isn't over. (laughs) <laughs> it's they just keep it going. It. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Like to me, that sounds know, like, let's right? go tomorrow. Yes. Exactly. So you've got the five senses in this, you know, you can just picture this part of the world. The lyric, I mean, the, the melody of this thing is completely simple. It is, it is like just six notes, uh, which again makes it not, not most people's favorite piece, but it also means you're, your kid who's just learning how to, you know, how to play the piano can play the holly and the ivy is one of the first. I think it was for me too. Yeah. I think it was on the recorder as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. These super simple instruments, real medieval feeling Mm -hmm. simplicity. It's got a simple tune with lyrics that are designed for simple people to learn important truths. That is so, and that's so accessible. We've talked so much about so many of the Christmas carols that were written, whether they were written in the 1700s or the 1500s or the 1800s, were written with the intent. Charles Wesley was one of the ones we've talked about. And just the idea of wanting to teach truth through song, so important in the church. And especially in these days when there was no, when reading wasn't widespread. Yeah. So a couple, about three years ago, when we were coming up on the eve of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the uh, German government of the former East Germany brought me over to do a press junket to sort of show what's going to be here for people to make a 500 year anniversary trek. And one of the places they took me was the church where Beethoven, yeah, Beethoven was the church musician. Can you imagine? No, I would be in awe. Absolutely. (laughs) But one of the things that Luther said after his conversion was as a choir boy, I had all this music memorized and it worked in my soul. 
Yeah. And that is why it was, you know, the guy who wrote A Mighty Fortress, it's such a core value for him to be writing music for the masses because he knew how much it sticks with you in a way that yeah. other things don't, right? I mean, you can, most of us can say the first few lines of something like the Brady Bunch. And, you know, if you were a kid in that era, you still know the lyrics. Exactly um, right. And that's, you know, the music, I think it was Luther, and I don't remember the exact quote, but Luther basically said, second only to Christ is music. Second only to, to my faith is the singing of, and, and because he recognized the power of music and the necessity of music. And he might not have been a, a neuroscientist, they didn't even know what that was, but he understood the impact of music on the brain. Yeah, it stays. Yeah. It does. So let's get into the verses then. Let's get into the, each of the verses and kind of the themes we find through this beyond just kind of the 40,000 foot view. Let's take, let's go in the weeds a little bit. Yeah. So the holly and the ivy, the holly is Jesus. The ivy is Mary. Okay. okay. When they're both full grown of all the trees in the wood, the holly is better because it bears the crown. Okay. So Jesus is best of all. Right. Um, and so there's nothing really said about the ivy in that verse. And then every verse has the rising of the sun, the running of the deer, the playing of the merry organ, sweet singing in the choir. And it just repeats this running, you know, rising sun, running deer, which running deer in, you know, I'm in Texas in the year 2020. That is not an everyday occurrence for me. Right. But in the Cotswolds in the 1700s, that's lunch and dinner. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. If, right? if you see a deer go past, you're, you're way in the yeah. country and like. And that's your bow and arrow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think he, I think that this is designed to talk about the everyday realities. The sun comes up every day, hmm. the deer runs through, and the good things in life are a merry organ and the choir singing. Absolutely. So I like it. Very much built on, this is for everyday people and everyday day life with something special thrown in. Yeah. So second verse, Holly, Holly bears a blossom. Right. So we typically think of the holly fruit as the berry, but it's mm -hmm. got this white blossom for a short amount of time. And it says that white is a lily flower and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ to be our sweet savior. So the white is just a, referring to Christ again. That the purity of Christ. Is that, is that what exactly. you say? Okay. Exactly. Yep. So Mary's thrown in there, but again, Mary bore Jesus, our savior. So she's so, secondary to Christ, the savior. Okay. Exactly. So when you look at, at the blooming of the holly and you see that white blossom, think of the purity of Jesus. That's good. He's our Savior. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Third one, the holly bears a berry, right? After the blossom stage, you got a berry stage. And what's red in the, you know, in the passion of Christ? Well, the blood of Jesus. Blood, that's right. And Mary bore sweet Jesus. Why? For to do us sinners good. Mm. So again, it's going back to, yeah, Mary played a role, but why did Jesus come for sinners? For sinners. So when we look at the fruit of the holly, think of Jesus coming for our good, shedding his blood. Yeah. Next verse, the holly bears a prickle as sharp as any thorn. Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ Christmas Day in the morn. Well, obviously, when you think of a thorn, you're thinking the crown of thorns. That's right. Why is Jesus, you know, bearing a crown of thorns? And then Mary bearing Jesus is at Christmas Day is a reference to the incarnation. Right. Right. God has come in the flesh to wear that crown of thorns to, to die for us. Finally, uh, actually, well, the final verse is just repeating the first, but the next to last is the holly bears a bark as bitter as any gall. And when you think of gall and Jesus, mm -hmm. you think, you know, what was he offered on the cross? Right. Mary, poor sweet Jesus Christ, for to redeem us all. 
So simple little simple way to yeah, and it's so sing songy that I think. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on on why he repeated the la- the first verse at the end? Do you think it was anything more than a compositional technique? Yeah, I mean, obviously coming for su- full circle, but it's the holly and the ivy when they're both full grown. The holly rocks <laughs> like it's the, the best. Holly. <laughs> so you know, crowning, bringing it like back to the beginning, bring it back. Yeah. So. Basically, here's what I'm going to say. Jesus is awesome. And then here are all the ways to think about Jesus when you think about Holly and Ivy. And then, like I said, Jesus is awesome. Well, I think the, yeah, it kind of brings it back. I think the thing I, I love about, it, especially those last, the last two verses, not the repeated verse, is how there's the tie-in both to the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. Or, you know, the, the berries, the crown, and the gall, right? Three verses. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's powerful to remind us as believers that that Christmas is the beginning of the, well, you could argue not the beginning of the story, but the beginning of Christ's ministry and then pointing it towards the ultimate end, the ultimate goal of what he was here yeah, to do. And exactly. And I think sometimes we, we think about Christmas and we go, and we do go straight to the passion of Christ. And I love that this one, you know, in the last verse before the repeated verse emphasizes the incarnation. I think mm-hmm. we need to camp there a little longer than we usually do. Like, what does it mean that our God would come in the flesh? Yeah. Like that in and of itself is, is why we have a separate holiday, right? Um, because Jesus coming in the flesh means he's our great high priest. He understands what it means to be human. Yes. It means that, you know, so many things. Uh, uh, it, it dignifies physicality, right? Every Ooh, other religion is sort of woo-woo with, with physical things. And you're like, well, first thing in Genesis is God is making matter and he takes on matter and he enters matter to bear matter. And in the future, our our heavenly kingdom is not going to be up in the clouds somewhere. It's going to be physically on earth. Like God is is blowing the, the minds of Gnostics or people who would think woo-woo spiritual kind yeah, of separating better them. than matter and he's like well flesh is bad if you let it drive you but the five senses are really a gift of god they're man they're the that preaches i love that yes it's the only way we have of knowing god right he's the door he's the bread he's the water like all these are physical things because we don't have any other analogies for the invisible who's everywhere <laughs> and so this this really ties it back to the christmas season because there is so much and you just spoke about it earlier when you talked about going to england there's so much about Christmas that is about the senses, that it's about the smells and the sights. And I, I love, we just, uh, true confession, we're recording this on November 2nd. It won't come out till later. But my family put up one of our first Christmas trees last night. And my kids love the lights. They love the lights. Yes. And there's so much yeah. symbolism to the light. We can talk about that when we put these things up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the light of the world, for sure. And imagine, imagine you can't read. So how much more it means to you mm. to see light, to smell holly and be reminded, to see a berry and be reminded, to walk into a cathedral where, you know, typically we Protestants only talk about cathedrals as being ripoffs to the peasants. But, right. but that's not the <laughs> picture, right? Like, it's also the city hall and the place you're hearing time because there's no such thing as a clock. So you're hearing the bells remind you not just of time, but of a wedding, of a funeral, of news. It's the place you run if there is, uh, you know, a huge storm coming through because your thatched roof is not going to, you know, keep you safe. 
I mean, it's, it's so many, it's the Agora outside where you're going to buy and sell things on the, on the lawn. It's your Bible, right? You, You can't read the Bible, but you can learn to read pictures. And so it, this is the place uh, that's full of senses that, yeah. that is going to remind the peasants of deep theology. And that's a, absolutely, you, I couldn't have said it any better. That's absolutely profound why, why this made so much sense and, and why these types of songs helped ground people's faith in that time and why they still and last today. Part of, why, yeah, part of why the melody has to be simple, because you know what it's like to go into a cathedral. And if you're singing a really complex song, it just can all sound like noise by about the 10th note. But yes. if you're singing da 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 like that really resonates beautifully yeah. in these spaces that have echoes. Well, and one of the things I, we'll talk about our arrangements here and just a minute, the, the versions we picked to kind of talk about that we enjoy. But one of the arrangements I picked was a version that on every verse, it, it goes up a key. It moves up a key and he, oh, he makes wow. every, every verse adds a little bit more complexity to the call and the response. It's a, it's a jazz arrangement. But I just, I think when you have something simple, like a six note melody, it allows you to be more creative when you're trying to kind of make new versions yeah. of it. So, well, let me ask yeah, you this. And it then, makes it yeah. It makes you feel timeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the question I had, how, how biblically accurate do you feel like each of those verses are? Do you feel like there's anything in them that feels a little bit uh, off? I, I, Cause every Christmas Carol has its own creative interpretations at times. Um, and so is there anything yeah. in these that you feel like that you went, Oh, that might not be a hundred percent, but it's still, it's creative liber- Liberty, I guess you'd say. Not really. I mean, he shed his blood. He loves his people. <laughs> yeah, he Pretty simple. It's, it's so simple that, you know, it doesn't get you into much trouble. I, I think that the reason I spent so much time emphasizing that Mary isn't, isn't the main point here is because on first reading, if you know it's about Jesus and Mary, again, our Protestant impulse is often to go, oh yeah, overdoing Mary, to the point where we just don't even appreciate this person who's, I think she's the third most mentioned person in the New Testament, right? As a, as a reaction against our Protestant roots of Catholicism, we just don't do Mary at all. I think I've done uh, about 15 different women's Bible studies and none of them ever included Mary. <laughs> that is so um, shocking and- too. Yeah. Well, I mean, we just, we're allergic to her after the Reformation. I think we need to get over it. It's time to, you know, reclaim Jesus's mother. But if anything, people might have looked at this and, and gone, oh, you know, why do we have Holly for Jesus and Ivy for Mary? You know, are we doing that equal thing? But again, once you start paying real close attention to lyrics, you know, no worries. Yeah, well Mary spoken. Good. Absolutely, and it's and it's great to acknowledge her, and it's a it's a good thing to venerate her. She had an incredibly difficult job. I mean, she was called as a teenager, and then watched her son die thirty years later. So, what a hard hard job she was given, and so it's it's okay to to celebrate her below the. I want to be like that. Yeah. Right. Oh man. I can't imagine her job was, she was called to it. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, what do you think? Uh, I think we've already talked about some of these points that I want to talk about, but let's, uh, what would, what do you take away from this song? When you see it today, is there anything that when you look at it, or maybe when you come back to it, when you revisit it, uh, like a, like a familiar friend that you just are reminded of other than, I know we've talked a little bit about the, the simplicity of it, the simplicity of teaching, but is there anything that you take away from it that maybe as you come back to it year after year kind of helps kind of refresh you? I think that one of the things that's so beautiful is that it just 
finds analogies to the spiritual life in everyday things, which is a great exercise. There's a there's a contemporary of Shakespeare in England, Lancelot Andrews, and he he wrote a bunch of prayers that I've just finished reading for a course I'm, I'm putting together in the UK. And one of the things that he does that I love so much is he just walks down Jesus's body parts and said, what did Jesus do with his ears? That was so great. Well, he listened and God bends his ear down to us. What did Jesus do with his mouth? Well, he spoke kind words, but he was also silent like a sheep before the slaughter. You know, what did Jesus do with his hands? Well, they, he touched children and he blessed them and he said, let them come to me. And he, you know, and he, and he let the woman touch him and, you know, but he also bore the, but he didn't just go straight to the passion of Christ. He spent some time on, on each, just taking, looking at your own hand, your own fingers and thinking, you know, what did Jesus do with this that he had? And this mm. song is, is just perfect for that in reminding us, you can pick up a holly branch yeah. and yeah. find in it something that is, you know, it's just this Christ-infused world we have. That's so it's right. not that far for us to, to smell something and remember, to see something and remember, and to make it a practice of looking for the, you know, that, that cliche of stop and fel- smell the flowers. Well, stop, smell the flowers and think about who made the lilies of the field and who made the flowers and who clothed, you know, clothed them better than Solomon. That's right. <laughs> I, I cares for us. That is so good. That reminds me of a friend who we were doing a devotional when we went to Colorado one year and he, he was, he's talked about the pine trees up there and he said, look at the way the pine trees are created. They, they're creating giant arrows. They're pointing up. They're pointing to their creator. I was like 12 when I heard that. And I still remember that because of the power of that imagery. Yeah. 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 It's, it's and a, not every simple image we come up with in our heads has to be shared or published. You know, some of it is just, it's even trite, but that's okay. It's <laughs> like, between you it's and a, God. That's a for you and God moment. Exactly. And it's a discipline to be looking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so real quick then, let's, let's, let's jump that rabbit hole for just a minute. How do you help yourself be disciplined in that way? Because it is so hard in our world. Everything is coming at us yeah. at a million miles a minute. Advertisements, commercial, social media. It all feels like it's just, it's just overwhelming us. So what are things that you do to kind of slow down and do that? Well, I have this, I, I'm a recovering workaholic. And Eugene Peterson, best known for uh, translating the message mm-hmm. or paraphrasing the message. I did an interview with him uh, one time as a, as a class assignment, and he was talking about how he makes a weekly practice of Sabbath. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy's a seminary professor. He's massively published writer, and he's finding time to do this. So I start, you know, grilling him. And I said, you know, I've tried and tried and tried to, like, we go to bed Saturday night, we get up Sunday morning. But if I wait till Monday morning to like lay my clothes out and get my week, it's crazy. And he said, well, you're not taking a Jewish Sabbath. You're taking an American Sabbath. That's 36 hours from Friday night to Monday morning. You should try Saturday night to Sunday night. So that let's say um, you need to cook a nice dinner, but you don't want to spend your night cooking. So make sure you're done cooking by five. And then if you need to return call Sunday night and get ready for Monday, you wait till after five Sunday to do that so that you put aside and you can move to the margins of the day, the things mm-hmm. that can wait so that you get it. And that to me was a, a life changing uh, 
explanation for how to do it. And so after that, we started making a habit of 24 hours. And the, the two rules are you can play and you can pray. <laughs> That's it. Easier so, rules to remember because they rhyme. Yes, I like that. Play and pray. Um, so for me, uh, sometimes writing is play. If I have a rant, I need to get off my chest. I do it, but I can't use book deadline like to, to write on Sunday. Okay. I can maybe write poetry or write something I need to get down out of my head. Um, but so what that means is I often spend most of Sunday afternoon just reading because I love to read. My husband doesn't like to read. And so he's off at Canton, you know, at a flea market or <laughs> buying and selling Texas pot or, you know, whatever is is life-giving for us. And I found that pretty soon as an artist, I discovered that it was sort of like, like lace is what makes cotton beautiful. <laughs> it's the holes. Yeah. And the oh. holes I had in my life for space made so much more beauty. And it, it made it easier for me to start appreciating things more. Uh, and, and then I fell down the steps and I needed surgery and I found myself on a hospital bed and there was a lot I couldn't do and I wasn't freaking out. Because I'd already made it a habit once a week of doing nothing and knowing that I wasn't going to accomplish a darn thing. And so when I had to have several weeks of my life of doing nothing, I, I had already made it a habit. Thank God for Eugene Peterson. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't that difficult wow. for me. That, I don't know if that's for anybody else who's going to listen to that, but that was for me. Like that was so good. And it, that thing you said about the holes making the beauty um, I was a musician by training and in all of my jazz comp or jazz classes, it all, they always talked about what makes jazz so powerful isn't the notes. It's the space between the notes. And what you just said rang deeply in my soul because it was exactly what I'd heard as far as music goes. But why would that law or that rule be any different in our own lives? If that's the rule that works for music and for cotton, the space in our own lives makes beauty. Ooh, that is Good. Man, thank well, you for sharing. It changed my life. It, yeah. it changed. And even so, it took me 10 years to get my PhD. And people are like, hurry up. I'm like, I can't. I am one seventh disabled. Okay. Wow. I have one seventh less time than other people do because I, I can't. But I emerged from my, from my doctoral work with a happy marriage and, you know, a decent relationship with God. Yeah, like, right, I didn't, like, put all my friendships on hold, like I did when I was working on my master's. Mm. I was, I was changed by that. And that, that was another thing he had said, you, you can't do as much as other people do, if you have one seventh less time in your life. Yeah, but it also yeah. helps you focus on what you really can do and need to do and need to get rid of. Man, that's so good. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad we kind of went down that rabbit hole for a minute, because I think it's just, it's important, especially in this time of year when everything feels compact and compressed to say, to create margin. And I think that's, that is so good. So good. Thank you. Um, let's get into the versions of these songs that we kind of, we, we both picked. And I think it's funny, neither you nor I picked a version with lyrics initially. Like you picked a couple of instrumental versions. I picked a couple of instrumental versions and I went, Oh, well we, yeah, I noticed that and you'd email me back. So let's, let's, uh, let's play your first version. It's one of the ones without, without words, but it's also what I thought about saying, so, uh, this is by Mannheim steamroller.
So talk through, what, what about that version made you decide that's one of your favorites? What do you like about it? Uh, I like the medieval feel. Uh, I like that I can I could imagine that reverberating in a wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it, I could picture the Cotswold. I could it just fit the, the the geography and the place and the simplicity of the song. And I could imagine a little child learning how to play it. Yes, I, I really I listened through it before we before we met, and I like the 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 interlude that he adds in there too, kind of the little minor mode that he puts in there, kind of as transitioning us from verse to verse. That I think just creates some connective tissue. Uh, but and of course, you know, Hitman Steamroller, they've been Chip Davis has been doing beautiful music for decades, so he has great arrangements. Okay, well, let's go to the next version. I think this is the one with this is okay. This is the King's College. about that is kind of the the call and the response that it starts with a single voice and on the refrain it takes it brings the whole choir in which is kind of unexpected but since the choir is mentioned in the piece that makes it fun yes um and that reverb of the uh you know the the actual space it's performed in that just oh right in cambridge i'm assuming that was in cambridge i i believe I, I had never heard that version before you sent it to me. So I was excited to hear another, another version of the song. And it, obviously having the lyrics in there is very important because that's the whole, I think that gives, the, that gives the meaning to the song. It's, it's fun to play with instrumentally, but it's also, it loses a little, you have to know the lyrics to know the power of it. So speaking of instrumental versions, I've got two here. This first one, uh, I played in a jazz ensemble years ago, and this was a version we did. It's actually by a very famous uh, composer named Stan Kenton. But you'll notice what he does is he adds to the complexity of the instrumentation every verse. We won't listen to the whole thing. Uh, and he changes the keys. He goes up, up, up each, and then he comes back down by the end. Starts very simply with actually the band is whistling the first verse. And he keeps going up. And if you know Stan Kitten, he eventually breaks to a very jazzy uh, version of it because that's where he needs to go to. So he does. So it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And he just keeps adding to it and getting bigger and more. It's, it was a very intense piece to play as a newer, newer instrumentalist because it kept changing keys. 
it's very stressful, but it was fun. It was fun. So, and the other version I have is Andrew Peterson. Are you familiar with Andrew Peterson? Have you heard that? Okay. I was so, I'm so glad. Uh, well, his version, this is another instrumental version, but it's off that same album that, uh, the behold the lamb of God, which, uh, really that tells the story of Christ from, um, the mosaic covenant covenant through Christ's coming. So it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's an album in the truest sense of the form, but this is his version. Let's we'll play a little bit of it. Kind of has a bluegrass feel. Beautiful arrangement. Andrew Peterson, Behold the Lamb of God. Anytime I have a chance to put anything it has on there, I want to, because it's just a great album. Well, I, I really have appreciated this time. I'm telling you, that has there's been some profound moments for me of just, wow, during our conversation. Uh, it's been so good to have you on here. My pleasure. Um, Take masses, right? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, I know, and we talked about it in the in, in the your bio at the beginning. I know you're you're writing. You're obviously a very prolific author. Is there anything right now that you have out there that you want us to to know about? Is there anything? Is there any brand new books? Sure. Um, I have one that's about a year old, vindicating the vixens, with uh, about twenty contributors. And it the reason I brought that up right now is because we start with the women in Jesus's genealogy. And the authors, men and women from different parts of the world, argue they're not actually in there because they were immoral. <laughs> they're in there for other reasons, which they they talk about. And the Virgin Mary is is a big one that's uh, her whole life. Uh, Timothy Ralston is the contributor on that. It really takes a deep dive into uh, where Protestants need to recover some of our appreciation for her. So I think that really fits well. Yes. With it. And... All the prophets benefit the international justice mission. So that's cool too. That's awesome. Vindicating the vixens. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to put a, can I put a a Amazon link in our show notes for today to make sure that gets in there? Awesome. Well, that's, that's great. I was hoping, I knew you, you've written many wonderful books along the way in the years I've known you. And so knowing that's your newest one, that would be great to to put out there for everybody. Uh, One last question off the top of your head. What is your favorite holiday or Christmas tradition? Oh, my favorite holiday tradition was um, even before we were believers, we would do the Advent thing, gathering around the reef, and we would argue over who got to light the candle. Of course. (laughs) I remember my mother's voice singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, And so, and to think about this uh, as an unbeliever singing, O Come, O Come, and ransom. And then later, you know, later in my life to have come to know Christ, I love, I just love putting the wreath out on the table and being reminded that God was drawing me even as a young child through music. That is fantastic. I love that tradition. That's so great. So great. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for coming on to Comfort and Joy. I'm absolutely, and hopefully we'll do a second season and have you back in in a year. Uh, We'll pick another song and have a great time with it. So thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Comfort and Joy was recorded at Torn Curtain Studios in Plano, Texas. It was produced by me, Tim Groves, and Meadows Baptist Church. 
For more information and links to sources for today's show, please see our show notes. The theme music for Comfort and Joy was written and arranged by Dennis Lambert. For more info or to support him and his craft, you can do so on his Patreon account, and you can find that link on our show notes. Finally, remember to check out meadowsbaptist.org and join us for our weekly live stream services, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Stay safe, stay hopeful, and remember, there is comfort and joy this holiday season, no matter what season you're in. Mm -hmm.